We're continuing our study of Ecclesiastes, which is an Old Testament book of the Bible about how to live wisely in this world that we are in. And today's sermon passage addresses money. Now, money is a tricky subject to talk about anyway, but money is also a tricky subject in the Bible. Because on the one hand, material blessings and wealth are seen as a sign of blessing from God. Abraham was blessed with great wealth from God. King Solomon had unsurpassed wealth as a sign of God's blessing. And so wealth and possessions are rightly seen as a good thing. But wealth is also viewed negatively. Most famously in the New Testament in 1 Timothy 6, where it says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. And God judges people for greed and covetousness and a lack of generosity towards those in need. And so money can be seen negatively. And because of these two emphases in the Bible, some Christians have kind of overemphasized one or the other. Some well-known preachers today proclaim a gospel of health and wealth, assuming that God can and will give material wealth and blessing to all of his favored people. And if you are in poverty, it is in somehow your fault that God wants to bless you materially. Whereas others throughout history have emphasized the other side, like monks who sold all of their possessions and intentionally lived a life in poverty to avoid the evil of money. And so we're left with kind of these, these twin ideas in the Bible. And some take this one strongly and others take this one strongly. But Ecclesiastes 5 and 6 tries to set us on a balance, a helpful balance. That wealth is a good gift from God. But the pursuit of wealth as an end in itself is sinful and foolish. So wealth can be a good blessing, but the pursuit of it in and of itself can be foolish. And so we're going to keep that in mind as we look at our passage this morning. It starts in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verse 8. And I'm going to read through Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verse 9. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, beginning in verse 8. Hear the word of the Lord. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. 
As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them. But a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds its rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good. Do not all go to the one place. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. That you are a God who speaks the truth. That you are a God who has given us your authoritative, inspired word. And we thank you and pray that you would bless the hearing of your word, that you, O God, might go forth in the power of your word, for it is a living and powerful word, and that you would go forth in the power of your spirit to use me in spite of my sin and my weakness to faithfully proclaim your word, to speak truly applying this inspired word that we find here in your scriptures, and that you would give us ears to hear that our minds would not be focused on other things, but that you would give us ears to hear your word today and to understand it and that our minds and hearts might receive it as the truth, O God, and that you would work in us to receive it and trust it, knowing that you, O Lord, speak even today through your word and by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So our passage today shows us a problem. That's the main thing it does. It shows us the problem of seeking 
wealth. If we are only after wealth, it's showing us this is why that's a problem. Then it shows us the solution, how contentment is a solution. And then it shows us the power of that solution to change our lives. And so our passage starts with a problem, and it starts in verses 8 and 9 in kind of a weird way that doesn't necessarily fit or doesn't seem to fit. It describes how wealth creates inequality and injustice in the world. That if we see oppression and injustice in the world around us, especially against the poor, we should not be surprised. And the reason given for that is that the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. Now, sometimes in Scripture, that language is used to point us to God as the highest official. But not here. Not in this case. Instead, it is pointing us to the fact that the rich and powerful watch out for one another. Watch out for themselves. They make sure the systems in place favor them to keep themselves rich, even if they need to oppress the poor in order to do it. So you're like, what? That's bad stuff, God. Yeah. And so you might expect the next verse, verse 9, to say we should pray against such systems. We should seek to change them for the better. You might read... Are the poor supposed to rise up and to make a change in the world? And yet verse 9 says, But this is gain for a land in every way. A king committed to cultivated fields. And so you're like, hold on. You're saying this inequality can be gain for a land. Now, keep in mind, this was written over 2,000 years ago. There was no such thing as democracy, no such thing as voting, no such thing as legal protests. You know, uprisings were squashed violently. And so what it's saying is not be content if you are oppressed so much as there are still benefits in this system. You see, in an ancient world, when a king had a lot of land, you were really hoping he would turn that land into cultivated fields. Because you know who didn't cultivate those fields? The king himself. He had people for that. Laborers for that. Who would then have jobs and purpose and a way to feed their families. And even then, the poor could pick whatever was not picked up in the harvest and eat it for themselves. Think about it today. In today's economy, you see cities jockey for the right to have a big company come and set up shop in town. Yes, those companies may not have the best business practices. You may question them in some ways. But in a world where such companies thrive, it's essentially like there are some benefits to it, right? And so these two verses, verses 8 and 9, set the stage for the author's reflection on wealth. He's essentially saying the world as we know it is set up to benefit the wealthy, And you would expect him to then say, do everything you can to be set up as wealthy. If the world works in favor of the wealthy, be wealthy. But that's not his conclusion. Instead, he is showing us that seeking wealth merely for the sake of becoming wealthy is no guarantee that you will enjoy life. 
Too many of us think that we would be happier if we had more. If I was rich, if I had greater wealth, if I had more possessions, I would be happier. But the author of Ecclesiastes wants to show us that this perspective is problematic. And he gives us three reasons in verses 10 through 12. Verses 10, 11, and 12 are like three Proverbs giving us three reasons. I put them in the outline in the bulletin for you. The first reason we should not seek wealth is that riches never satisfy. Verse 10, it says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. See, wealth never truly satisfies because there's always more wealth to be gained. You may have seen this idea in two modern musicals which star ambitious characters who are constantly looking for more. In The Greatest Showman, if you've seen that one, P.T. Barnum is searching for recognition and success, and it is summarized in the song Never Enough, which sings this. I'm not going to sing it. I'll just say it. Okay. It says, Towers of gold are still too little. These hands could hold the world, but it'll never be enough. Never be enough for me. Never enough. The same unsatisfied ambition is seen in Hamilton, the story of Alexander Hamilton who strives to prove himself during the founding years of our nation and during the appropriately titled song, Satisfied, we are told again and again, he will never be satisfied. And while both Barnum and Hamilton made a name for themselves, each musical moves to show us the main character realized that their constant quest for more led to ruin, not happiness. That's what verse 10 says. The constant quest for satisfaction in more, more money, more success, more possessions, whatever it is, does not satisfy. We cannot pursue wealth for that reason. It's wrong. The second reason we should not seek wealth is found in verse 11. It says, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? As you acquire more wealth and more possessions, it takes more effort and wealth to manage those possessions. One person who understood this was the rapper Biggie Smalls, who summed this up in a song that I'm sure you all have heard. Of course, the rapper Biggie Smalls. Mo money, mo problems. Right? We've all, no, okay, maybe we haven't heard it. You may find it weird that we're referencing the notorious B.I.G. here in Bethel Church, but you know what? That guy got Ecclesiastes 5 verse 11. He understood that with more money comes more problems. Yes, I have enough money to buy 10 cars, but now I need a garage to put them in. Now I need to pay insurance on all 12 of them. Now I need to change the oil on all these cars. And if I don't want to do that, then I need to pay someone to do that. And then I need to figure out, is that person doing a good job? Do they need a raise? Are they taking advantage of my cars? What am I doing here? And so with more comes more problems. Wealth brings its own set of problems. So that's the second reason he says we should not seek wealth in and of itself. The third reason we shouldn't seek wealth is that we will be anxious about losing that wealth. We see that in verse 12. It says, sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much. 
but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Now, this isn't so much about indigestion or insomnia as it is anxiety. That the laborer gets up each day, tires himself out doing his job, making enough to sustain his simple life, and he sleeps well. But the rich man worries about profit margins and staffing issues and market trends in constant fear that the wealth will be lost. This idea is expanded upon in verses 13 through 17, which tell the story of a rich man who lost all his wealth in a bad venture so that he had nothing to pass on to his son as an inheritance. He had nothing to take with him when he died. All his work to build that wealth was gone, helping neither him nor his son. And so we see, often as wealth increases, so does our worry. Especially if our goal is to be wealthy and stay wealthy for generations to come. And so for these three reasons, the author of Ecclesiastes tells us that pursuing wealth for its own sake is foolish. He even uses the word evil. It's that bad. And though the world favors the wealthy, we should not seek to be wealthy in order to live the good life. Well, if that's not what we should do, then what is the way? How do we seek joy? What is the solution to enjoying life if it is not being wealthy? Well, in verse 18, the author says, here's the better way. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his happy life, of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Now that, that is good biblical advice, but it can sound a hint like just make the best of it. Just be happy with what you've got. And so those of us in this room, we might be able to take that as good advice. Many of us are not in abject poverty. Many of us are not homeless. Many of us seem to have enough. But what about those in great need? What about those who are truly deeply in poverty and don't have much, is the Bible telling them, hey, just enjoy it? Is that the only hope it gives them? It gives them something more. You see, the center of this passage is in verse 18 of chapter 5 through verse 2 of chapter 6. And in there, again and again, we hear the words given and gifts. That the way we enjoy what we have is seeing that everything is a gift from God. Consider the Cratchit family in A Christmas Carol. As Ebenezer Scrooge visits the family with the ghost of Christmas present, he sees a poor family in threadbare clothes having a meager supper. And yet we read, they were happy, grateful, pleased with one another, and contented with the time. How can that be? Because the Cratchit family, and especially old tiny Tim, he knew that all they had was a gift from the God who made lame beggars walk and blind men see. That as hard as life can be, life is still a gift from God. As little as we may have in this life, whatever we have is a gift from God. 
And just as grandparents joyfully pass out Christmas gifts to their grandchildren, so God blesses all his people with whatever they have. He does not do so randomly, as the word lot may suggest. He does so with purposeful love, hoping that those gifts that he gives will point them back to the giver of those gifts. But the problem is those gifts don't always do that. Even if we are given gifts, we don't always enjoy them. Look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6. It says, There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them. So it is possible to receive all of these things and still not enjoy them. Even if you are rich, even if you live a long time, even if you're blessed with a big family, it doesn't guarantee you will enjoy life. And this tells us that even more important than the gift of wealth is the gift of being able to enjoy whatever we have been given. To be content with what we have is a gift from God. He gives us the power to enjoy what we have, whether it is plenty or little. Because even if we have great wealth, our life can be miserable if we don't enjoy life. The author says it would be better not to be born than to live in wealth for 2,000 years without the ability to enjoy that wealth. And so our passage closes in verses 7 through 9 with a few reflections asking where our appetite is. Are we seeking more wealth to make ourselves happy? Are we striving for more and more, hoping it will fill the empty feeling inside? Do we believe that more wealth will bring more joy? Or have our eyes settled on what God has given to us? Are we content to enjoy what God has given to us? If we find that we are pursuing wealth and not content with what we have, have we considered praying to God? Lord, give me the power to enjoy what you have given me? Have we humbly asked for the gift of contentment? Because we are told here the power to enjoy is a gift. As we look at this passage today, it is primarily about wealth and possessions. But this power to enjoy our earthly wealth is inextricably tied to our heavenly inheritance. Because if this life under the sun is all there is, then we are going to have little reason to be content with having little. We will toil and gain to earn earthly wealth to have a better life now. And that's not going to satisfy. But the power to enjoy what we have is a gift from God that comes in the package of the gift of salvation. For when we are saved in Christ, we are given a heavenly inheritance of immeasurable worth. 1 Peter chapter 1 says that our inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It is kept in heaven for us. This inheritance is the gift of eternal life in Christ that he gives to us. It is not something we can earn. It is not something we inherit from our parents. It is not something we can pay for through good deeds. It must be received as a gift from the only one who could purchase that gift. Jesus. 
For us to receive that inheritance, our debt of sin had to be paid, including the sins related to money that we are guilty of, of greed, of covetousness, of lack of care for the poor. And Jesus said, I'll cover that. I will pay the price of your debt and the price of your gift of eternal life so that you can receive this priceless gift from me. This is our gift. And yet, that gift seems so far away when eternal life can't pay the bills now. When our heavenly inheritance is not accepted at Walmart and Amazon. When you cannot open your online banking account and see eternal life in the retirement portfolio. But knowing we have this gift helps us enjoy what we have on earth. Verse 20 stands at the center of this passage. And in the Bible, instead of starting with the big thing or ending with the big thing, they like to weirdly stick the big thing in the middle. And verse 20 teaches us something powerful. It says, For he will not much remember the days of his life, because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. The idea behind verse 20 is that those who enjoy God's gifts in this life are people who have their hearts occupied with the joy of eternal life. It doesn't mean we stick our heads up in the clouds and forget about our suffering and just live only for heaven. No. But the good times and bad times of this life are put in ultimate perspective by the prospect of eternal life. That to have this perspective, we must look to God with eyes of faith to see our invisible inheritance in heaven, trusting that His promise is more certain and sure than a bank statement. And so we should not only ask God for the power to enjoy the earthly gifts He's given us, we should ask for the power to enjoy our heavenly inheritance even now. Enjoy it so much that it occupies the thoughts of our heart. So that Our hearts are not thinking about how to increase our money and possessions, how to satisfy our earthly appetites and ambitions, looking just always for a little more. Instead, we occupy ourselves with heaven. Does your heart rest in the contentment of knowing that your future is secure in Christ? Do the moments of hardship that you go through not sting as much because you know what awaits you? And do you see earthly treasures as wonderful gifts, but gifts you can't take with you? Yes, life is hard. Ecclesiastes has shown us that again and again. It is full of suffering, especially for those without much wealth in the world. But it still says you can enjoy this life. And the power to do so is a gift from God. A gift that goes hand in hand with that gift of eternal life. So may we treasure our salvation in our hearts and let it occupy our thoughts so that we might be joyfully content in whatever we have been given in this life. Let us pray. Lord, we thank You that You are such a generous and giving God. Lord, what is a raise here in this life compared to an eternal inheritance in heaven? What is a little bit more here and now compared to the joy of being with You forever? 
Oh Lord, may we treasure the gift of salvation in Christ. May we see that whatever our bank account says, whatever future we hold financially, that the future that matters most is that we have an inheritance with Christ. And so I pray that each of us here might know that joy of eternal life, that you would open our hearts to receive the gift of salvation as well as that gift of contentment. And so find joy in occupied hearts of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.